Welcome to the Ephesiology Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the study of the early Christian movement and its implications for the church today. We have arrived at our penultimate episode in our Make Disciples podcast series, where we are covering what a disciple is, who we are in Christ, and what are the characteristics of a follower of our King. Today, we are discussing the expectation that disciples make disciples. Like always, we have Michael, our resident ephesiologist. I'm Andrew Johnson, a pastor at Neartown Church in Houston, Texas. And to send this topic home, we are incredibly honored to be joined by Jeff Vanderstelt. He is the executive director of Saturate, the founding leader of the Soma family of churches, and he gets to spend his days doing what he loves, mentoring leaders and equipping the church in the gospel and in missional living. Now, additionally, Jeff is on the leadership team of Saturate the Sound, a local church collective focused on gospel saturation in the Puget Sound. Jeff has authored Saturate, Gospel Fluency, Making Space, and the recent released 180, A Return to Disciple Making. So Jeff, welcome to the Ephesiology Podcast. Thank you. It's good to be with you guys. Well, Uh, we're really excited. I mean, it's so interesting, isn't it, how the Lord kind of brings hearts together and ideas together and uh, that love that you're focusing on discipleship. And of course, you're going to talk more about your recent book, which I'm just now getting into, but... uh, um, it's such an important topic for the church in the West, if not the whole world uh, today. I think yeah, that's pretty is. safe to say, uh, considering mm-hmm. Jesus sent us into the world, uh, Michael. So you you didn't overshoot it by including the whole world and saying it's important. I, I'm, I'm down. So is Jeff. But before we launch into the fun topic of making disciples, uh, Jeff, we, we did the big broad brushstroke you know, the lore that is Jeff Vanderstilt. So now, can you give us some of the finer points? What are some important things about you um, that your friends might know you would love to actually share on a podcast? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm been, I'll, I will have been married in March, 31 years. It will be 31 Woo! years in, in March. So to my lovely wife, Janie, uh, she's a true Seattleite. Met her when I moved to Seattle in 91. Uh, she is happy when it rains. So that's one of the ways you can know. <laughs> like um, us in West Michigan who are happy when it snows. Yeah, I think so. Maybe that's how it works. And that's where I grew up. I, we were uh, sharing earlier. I grew up in Michigan. So I uh, have three children, one who's graduating from the University of Washington this spring. Her name's Haley. Caleb is second year uh, in college at uh, Bellevue University. And then we have a high school student. Um, her name is Maggie. She's a junior. So, um, yeah, it's kind of weird. We're almost empty nesters. Um, I'm an avid sports fan. Love love football. Love hockey. Love uh, soccer or the real football. Some will say. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Those are my three big sports that I love to watch. So, Jeff, uh, I I didn't get an answer, and I was I was eager to know how deeply was your heart rent when it was the University of Washington playing the University of Michigan for the Collegiate National Championship? I was I was terribly torn. I was wearing a Michigan hat and a purple <laughs> shirt, uh, watching it with all Husky fans, and my kids were very angry at me that I would <laughs> still be a Michigan fan, but I am. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I was glad for 
for Michigan. I was sad for Washington, uh, especially Penix. He really took a beating. Um, mm -hmm. And then really sad because in one week, not only did we lose, Washington lost the national title, mm -hmm. but Caitlin DeBoer went to Alabama and Pete Carroll was fired from the Seahawks. It was like, are it was like kidding? gut punches everywhere. It was so bad. <laughs> it's like, are you kidding me? Anyway, here we are. But I'm yeah. also a Lions fan. I'm a Seahawks fan first and a yep. Lions. So fun to see the Lions going far. I will see. This how they is do. the year for Michigan, maybe. I think so. That's the hope. Yeah, that would be amazing if they they took a Super Bowl. And then of course Harbaugh now is going to be coaching the, the Chargers. Chargers. So man, yeah. everyone's yeah. leaving. Everything yeah. is moving. Everything is shaking. Uh, the one thing that we have, at least as a constant, as is this call, make disciples. We are to yes. be about making disciples. And I, I didn't, I wasn't trying to mince words in the intro. There is an expectation from Jesus that disciples make disciples. Uh, Michael, you have finished your book, Make Disciples, with this call to make disciples. So why do you why did you do an entire book? Why did you finish this book? Michael, why do you think it is so important that we make disciples? Well, I mean, it's almost obvious, isn't it? It's Jesus's last command. Uh, well, we say that it's his last command. It, it, hardly ever do we go to the book of Revelation and look and see what it is that Jesus is teaching the churches there. But certainly it revolves around disciple making and being who it is that Jesus wants us to be. And uh, so I'm so grateful, uh, Jeff, for your work on this. And I love how you've outlined your book, 180, uh, around around five, five shifts that you see that are necessary uh, as we think about the idea of disciple making. Walk us, walk us through some of the thinking there. How did this uh, be a part of your passion? And, and what are these shifts that you're talking about? Yeah, well, it's interesting. The origin of that book came about because Dave Ferguson, who leads Exponential, uh, called me up and said, hey, we're going to make the theme for 2024 Exponential be all about getting back to disciple making. Mm. Would you speak into our outline? <laughs> and, <laughs> and so it started with them yes, presenting please. me. They, yeah, they presented me with, you know, these five, they they had five shifts. And actually, it's it's drawn from 10 years ago. Uh, Jim Putman and Bobby Harrington write a book called Disciple Shift for Exponential back then. Um, and so they asked if I would look into it and maybe rethink it for post-COVID reality. And so I, I did. I spoke into it. While I was doing it, Dave's taking a bunch of notes. He says, can I send you the notes? Will you edit them? I edit them. Uh, I mean, I made quite a few changes. Not that the earlier one wasn't good. It's just I think we all right. approach these topics a little differently. And um and then he said, well, will you turn that into a book? And so I'm like, <laughs> and this was like last June. So I wrote it in about two months, um, which is not normally how you write a book, um, two and a half months. But uh, so it's it wasn't a plan I would I had, but I've been mm -hmm. I've dedicated my entire Christian life to disciple making. And so one of the reasons why Dave wanted me to write the book is because he said, uh, Jeff, you're not only someone who can teach on it effectively, but you're a practitioner who continue, has continued to do it your whole life. And mm -hmm. and that is true. And so that's why we wrote the book. The shifts are like, one, we've got to shift from re just reaching people to making actually making disciples. And within that category, there's several topics we address. We have to shift from just um, attending to a 
to attaching, learning how to do attachment-based disciple-making uh, instead of just attending groups and activities and, and going mm. through curriculum. Uh, we've got to build a shift from not just informing people to actually truly equipping people. I think a lot of what we say in the church is equipping is not actually equipping. It's just giving people mm. ideas, and mm. that's not how you train people. Um and then we have to make a shift from striving to thriving, which is all about spiritual health and spirit-led disciple making. I think a lot of our spirit or a lot of our disciple making is very flesh-driven uh, and oftentimes done from a very unhealthy place. Uh, so the disciples we make are living in the flesh and oftentimes very emotionally unhealthy. Uh, they don't look like Jesus in the way they love people. And then the last one is from deploying or from uh, accumulating to deploying. So we're not just trying to gain more and more, grow bigger churches, get bigger buildings, get bigger budgets. We're actually doing this to send people out to be disciple makers to the ends of the earth. And right. so that a lot of the there, we have to talk about what's our scorecard and what are we really after? So those, those are the big ideas within that mm -hmm. there's every shift has two chapters and then a workbook session so that a team could actually begin to rebuild what they're doing in light of, in line with what they're reading. So yeah, that's the book. It's free if you want it on exponential.org. So always, always good to get a free book. So you can get it at Amazon if you like paper, but then you have to pay for it. So yeah, you got to pay for paper, paper uh, cost, paper costs. Uh, it was quite, quite the joy. I was like, Oh man, I know Jeff's book is either out or it's about to be out. I need to chase it down. Oh, it's free. Well, then let me go take care of that right away. Yeah, yeah, real easy. Yeah. <laughs> um, I want to ask. Let's uh, be uh, almost like a, a slingshot. All right. So pull pull back before we get to that present. Now the the book from Exponential. Um, pull back. You have mentioned your life has been one marked by disciple making, both passion um, and practice. Um, Dave asked you for a reason. Uh, so what were what has for somebody who's maybe not familiar with you, Jeff, and they haven't read Saturate or Gospel Fluency, um, what has God done in your life up to this point to kind of solidify what disciple making looks like in everyday life? Well, I think a big part of what shaped me is I grew up in the church, but I was a, a I was a fake Christian my whole life. So like like I, I came, I, I came down the aisle and prayed the prayer because I was afraid of going to hell. How and many times also, did you go down that aisle? <laughs> that's a good question. Right. Well, one really clear time, yeah. but in part every single time, you know. Uh -huh. And um, but it was a, I, I was in a really real, real shame based, fear based church, and I mean, like there was literally public shaming. Like if you did certain sins, you had to go in front of the whole congregation and kind of be humiliated, right? And so so I just learned how to play the part because the last thing I wanted to do was get public shame. Mm. And um, and so it wasn't until I was 21 that I really met Jesus and surrendered my life to him and experienced a, a transformation of my very being. Like I, I, my mom, I was actually in Spain, came home, my mom, greeted my mom and dad greeted me when I right when I got off the plane. Of course, this is when you could still do that. And she immediately hugged me. Well, she hugged me. She pushed me back like this and said, "What happened? You're not the same person." Like she could tell. Oh wow! Just from that moment, I was not the same person. Mm. And and so I, I experienced transformation. And 
the very first thing I did when I when I got on my knees and surrendered my life to Jesus, I said, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll go wherever you want me to go. And he just started directing me in how to do that. And that summer, I worked at a Christian camp and led kids to Christ and taught them how to read the word and how to walk in the spirit. And I mean, this is like immediately after I become like months, just months after uh, the guy who mentored me gave me Robert E. Coleman's book, The The Master Plan of Evangelism. Um, so I when I really met Jesus, the only thing mm-hmm. I knew was you obey the one. You, right. If you love him, you obey him. And he said, make disciples. And so I just devoted my life to it and started youth, uh, became a youth pastor in Seattle I trained students how to make disciples who could make disciples. The, the youth ministry grew because they made disciples of non-Christians, and then those non-Christians made disciples and just grew because of multiplication. And, and every youth ministry I led, that's what happened, all the way to Willow Creek, which is the last youth ministry I was at. And we decentralized the youth ministry at Willow Creek because it had been largely, from my perspective, a big kind of event that everybody came mm-hmm. to, but they weren't getting trained. And so we we decentralized it to equip them to take responsibility for their own geography and taught these kids how to how to make disciples. And for me, I kept seeing that happen, but then they would graduate into what kids called big church. Right. They'd go to big church to be entertained again. That's right. And they were told, take mm-hmm. a seat, invite someone to sit next to you, give your money, maybe serve, you know, in a Sunday-based experience like a children's ministry or an usher or whatever. And and it's like, I just, I finally got to the place where I'm like, I can't do this anymore. Like, I can't prop up this thing. And I'm not saying Willow was all bad, but they publicly admitted later that they had not made disciples right. either, all 25 years of their existence. And which is crazy, you know, it like became the the model that everybody follow, followed. And then they admitted they weren't actually doing it. Um so that led me to go plant a church back in mm-hmm. Seattle. And I just kept saying, whatever we do, it's got to be normative that if you're a Christian, you're a disciple-making disciple. And so what do we do to make that normal? Uh, and that's mm-hmm. that was SOMA. And the way we, we started it was I just trained people how to become disciple-makers. Once they started making disciples, they were commissioned out to start their own little gathering of the church, which we called Missional Communities. And those were made up of non-Christians that they led to Christ. And then they would multiply in those that one mission community that I started multiplied over and over and over and over again until we had a well over a thousand people living it that way in mm. Tacoma. Um wow. so we actually had fewer people in the Sunday gathering than we had people on mission every day. Like we all we all told we always told them. The goal is not for you to come to Sunday. The goal is for you to right. go make disciples every day. If Sunday helps you and equips you well, great. When you come to the day when you don't need it, we, we're okay with that. As long as you gather with others who build you up, encourage you, equip you, don't be isolated. But our goal is never to grow this thing on Sunday. Our goal is to make you faithful to Jesus so that you could do this anywhere in the world. And that was one of the things we kept saying is if people were with us three to five years, they should be able to go start a church somewhere in the world, hmm. either in, wow. their, in their city, in our state, or anywhere else yeah. in the world. And that was our goal. Like, okay, so so, that, I wanna... so that's what that's what forms all yeah. of this thinking. And well, I just gave you rooted. 30, 30, I'm just turned 55. So I just gave you 33 years of my life in <laughs> a very quick summary. Uh, well, I want to go back because you mentioned that you were in Spain. I'm curious, hmm. what was it that God did to grab your heart in Spain that brought you back to the States and your mom said, hey, you're not the same person? 
Yeah, well, it's interesting. I I had just the girl I thought I was going to marry had just cheated on me before I moved to Spain with my best friend, and mm. so I went there heartbroken. Girls. I ended up living. Yeah, uh, dang. I ended up living in the in the <laughs> house. Yeah, except for now, I have my wife. So it's exactly. I uh, ended up living in the house of an older woman whose son was the pastor of the Bap only Baptist church uh, in that huh. town only Christian church in that town. And because um, as you know, Spain's mostly Catholic. And um, and she prayed for me regularly. And uh, I was living in all kinds of debauchery. Just, I, I didn't care anymore. I was like, you know what? Now I can do whatever I want. I don't have the shame-based system I'm living in. Um, and I I think giving myself over to be free to be me actually was probably the biggest breakthrough because it was like, I'm not pretending anymore. I'm not acting like something I'm not. And so mm. then I had to face the real me. <laughs> and I think uh -huh. living with the real me was a, the best thing probably that could have happened because then I began to realize mm. I don't like this me. Like there's something mm. about me that's not okay. I'm not okay with who I, what I've become or what I'm doing. I think sin actually became distasteful, honestly. Mm. And the distance uh, between me and God was more obvious for me than ever. I think when I was in a church culture, I at least had a pretend sense that I was okay. And now I was like, I'm not okay. And I remember coming home one night really late. And one thing my mom did, my parents were great, just to be clear, but culture of the church wasn't also that helpful. Um, my mom taught me to read my Bible every day. So even when I wasn't a Christian, I was reading my Bible every day. I come home one night opened my Bible. And I'd also been taught by my English teacher in high school to journal. So I'd always re read my Bible and journal, even though I didn't have a relationship mm -hmm. that was actually real. <laughs> wow. So I opened the Bible and I'm about, and I begin to read and I hear God speak to me uh, for the first time. And, um, and what I heard God say, and it wasn't audible, but it was undeniable. Like I just knew it was God. And it was, I see you. I've always seen you. I know you, and I know everything you do, and I love you, mm. and I I have forgiven you. I'm mm. I'm inviting you to receive what I've done for you, and mm. and that's when I I really knew he was inviting me to truly receive Jesus, the work he'd done, to enter into a, a genuine relationship with mm -hmm. with God through Christ, and um, and that was I mean it changed it changed me. I mean I immediately was. Yeah, now, when I talk about regeneration with people, I'm like, I know the difference. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I know when I was dead and then I became alive, when I was in dark and I went into light, when I didn't have a relationship and I did. Like, I know the difference. And it just, it changed me. Like, I can't, I could never, ever go back um, to what I was. Wow. Because so, I wasn't, I wasn't able to. I was a new creation. So yeah, yeah, that's neat. I love how God grabs our hearts, and and when that transformation occurs, it, it I, I mean it's life changing, isn't it? Yes, and you yes. can see that in the work that you've done and the passion that you have for disciple making. Uh, I love how you're you're you've emphasized this. You're seeing multiplication. Um, but how did we get to where we are today in the context of North America? Have, have we made it easy? And this was a question that was running through my mind as you were uh, sharing about SOMA. 
and and just the difference in the experience that you had at Willow Creek. Have we made it easy to not make disciples? I, I think we actually have made it <laughs> normal. Normal, like yeah, uh-huh. yeah. I mean, I was. I remember I was speaking at a conference once on a panel with a couple other leaders, well-known leaders um, in the church world, and one of them said, "You know, I, I'm not like Vanderstelt. Um, Vanderstelt's into the ninja work. Like he's make he's making disciples who make disciples, and that's just that's not. We can't really expect that. It's going to be normal oh. for Christians." He literally said it. He said, that's oh. that's ninja work, that Jeff, what Jeff is doing. And I'm like, I can't believe we're saying I'm saying that we're saying this. And I'm like, if it's ninja work, then what is what is the work you're doing? Mm-hmm. Like, so I think what happened is I think we we bought into a metric that is if they are in a gathering on Sunday and in group life, then we've won. Like that's a that's that's the goal, is that mm. they get connected in a community and into relationship with other people. And I believe all that's necessary, just to be clear, but for the sake of making disciples who make disciples, not as the end, the end goal isn't growing a bigger gathering or growing more groups. The goal is to help people follow Jesus and obey his commands. And that includes, and is summed up in making disciples who make disciples. So um, yeah, I, I I think the church growth movement probably fed into it. I think enlightenment and in the industrial revolution has played a big part of it because it's about assembly line and it's about inform- both those things. One is about assembly line and efficiency. The other is about information. I think therefore I am Descartes, you know, and the enlightenment. And so I think we bought into idea that giving people ideas is what it means to make a disciple. So primarily information-based and industrial efficiency-based is kind of what, what I think that informed it. And then, I mean, we can go all the way back to Constantine, you know, if we want to, and just say mm. what what mm. he did certainly influenced it. And we didn't go far, Luther didn't go far enough, in my opinion. Um, I think most of the Reformation didn't go as far as we needed to. I think we affirmed the priesthood of the saints, but I don't think that we truly embraced it, um, which is why I still think we have this clergy-laity mm-hmm. division mm-hmm. that says the clergy does the work of ministry and the laity pays for it. <laughs> or mm-hmm. watches it, you know, mm-hmm. and instead of we're all called to be ministers of the gospel, we're all called to full-time ministry in whatever place God's put us. So I think those are, I gave you a whole bunch, but mm-hmm. I think those are all connected to the reasons. And uh, whenever I sit with a pastor and say, do you believe that the majority of your church are disciples of Jesus who are making disciples of Jesus to a person? The answer is no. I mean, I've never had a pastor say, no, I believe the majority of our church are disciples who make disciples. Mm-hmm. And they just, we, I think we just learned to go like, that's just the way it is. Like we can't right. have it another way. And I disagree with that. I do agree with it. If you keep doing church the way you are, you can't have it another way. You are right. Because you are affirming people primarily watching somebody else do it all for you. Um mm. The church has got to be absolutely completely transformed if we're going to actually live out Jesus's commands. But I don't think the, I think the cost is too much for most pastors. They can't envision a world uh, that looks like that. Yeah, talk about that some mm. more. Why, what mm. do you mean by the cost is too much? Well, I think they I think they intuitively think, well, if if everybody else is making disciples, what am I going to do? Huh. So it's like a job security thing. I mm. think for some. 
Mm-hmm. I think I think they don't. Many of them don't don't make disciples themselves. So it would require a change in what they do with their life. Mm-hmm. They'd actually have to be spending t- more time with non Christians, being engaged in a lot less platform based ministry and a lot more relational based ministry. Like I think it would it would be costly in their schedule in terms of how they have to change the way they do what they do. I think it would be costly with their people. People would leave. Like I do believe. Mm-hmm. People will leave the church if you really call them to be disciple-making disciples. Jesus lost tons of people um, when he called them to follow him. And when they counted the cost, it was too much. And, mm-hmm. and so I think I really think the people that the people in the gospels who didn't follow Jesus and become disciple-making disciples were religious leaders and the crowds. And I think that's, sadly, that's a lot of what the church is today. Religious leaders and the crowds who aren't in this to make disciples, they're in it for something else. And I know that sounds, I used to hold back on saying those things. I'm just not going to hold back anymore because I've been in this long enough that when you start saying what it would take to be a disciple, making disciple, so many people don't want that. Mm -hmm. It's really. um... And that's, that grieves me. Yes. Now, saying it grieves me deeply that we the very Jesus we profess to love and worship is not the one we want to obey. Mm-hmm. Wow. Oh, wow, that that's powerful. Because really what you're talking about is and, and I think it's very appropriate that you're you're uh, identifying or exponential has identified these five shifts, because shift is what we're talking about. And it's really, isn't it a shift back to what should be normal? It should be normal. I mean, Absolutely. It should be normal. Yeah. yeah. And it is in a lot of places in the world, to be fair. But I think yeah. you asked yeah. about the right. United States or the or Western context. Yeah. And in the Western context, we have we have created something else that doesn't actually accomplish the Great Commission. Mm-hmm. I do believe it gets a lot of people maybe across the line of faith. Like, I think people get baptized in that method. You know, like we see a lot of people make a decision for Jesus. Mm-hmm. And get baptized, but that's not the same as becoming a disciple of Jesus. And and I think we have a largely a lot of infants, I would say, spiritual infants in the church who have experienced new birth, but were not grown up to become a spiritual parent and eventually a spiritual grandparent. So what wow. did you do? Um I, I need to ask a question real fast before I feel too damned in uh some of the talking <laughs> that we are doing right now. Um but something that hits me is that when these sort of topics come up and specifically when we start calling people to account <laughs> when, and, and by that, I mean, we're pointing back to what Jesus said, not, not because I'm saying it because I want my church to look like this. So I'm asking you to do it. I'm saying, this is what Jesus said. Are we going to do it? Um, I was recently, uh, yesterday, <laughs> it's real recent editing a document that it, it's trying to help our groups at my church ask questions about obedience and it it was said you need to ask these two questions on the regular and it is what are you going to stop doing and what are you going to start doing and i just realized like i had a a moment of fear of saying when we put these before people again and when we start pushing them to ask these questions i'm worried people are going to scatter I'm worried people are going to say this is not I I don't have time for this in my schedule. I don't have 
this isn't the type of church that I thought this was going to be. So Jeff, when you were doing the Soma thing and you had people coming thinking, oh man, there's this new thing in town and people are loving it and I can't wait to come and take from this joyous thing. And then they were called to account. How did you help them? And I really am excited about the how. How did you help them go from, I'm content to be a consumer to be a disciple? How did those conversations go? Well, you know, I, in some ways I had it had it easy because I got to start from zero, right? When you, and I guess you're never starting from zero, but I started with 20 people and I spent one year just with those 20 people training them what in, in disciple, being a disciple and being a disciple maker. And so when, when you kind of get known for that in your city, which is what happened, people started to know about us. They knew like if that's if you want to go be about the mission of Jesus in everyday life and make disciples and make disciples, you want to go to Soma. So in some ways, the reputation was was so strong that you wouldn't want to come if you really just wanted right. to hear someone preach. And that was it. You know, that mm-hmm. though, you know, I was a strong preacher. The other the guys are, that were on our team were all very strong communicators. So I, we'd still had some of that. But we would, we'd always, we'd, you know, every Sunday we'd say, hey, we don't go to church. We are the church. Uh, right. We're called to be the church every day. If you want to be a part of what we're doing, we're committed to equip you to be a disciple who makes disciples in everyday life. Like, that's what we said pretty much every week. And then there was a pathway. Like, if you want to figure out how to do that, we'll take you through a, a journey. We didn't let people, we didn't let Christians join groups unless they went through the process uh, so that we didn't, we didn't want groups to be we tried that and Christians would actually ruin groups because they would join a missional community and then they want it to be just for Christians and they'd want it to be what they did before somewhere else. Right. And that didn't produce disciple making. So so we eventually said you can't join a missional community unless you go through our 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 disciple making pathway, which is kind of helping you understand what the gospel is, how to be fluent in it, your identity in Christ, how that informs everyday life. And then they had to actually start to practice in the way of Jesus before we'd put them into a group. And so that that's pretty much how we protected the church from being taken over by consumers. Um, mm. And then we would regularly say, if you're just attending a Sunday gathering, you're not actually part of SOMA. To be part of SOMA, you've got to be committed to being a disciple who makes disciples in a missional community. And you got to be a part of a DNA group, which was our triads for same-sex formation, like in terms of like, I'm with two other guys weekly that are in my life, know my story, helping the internal world of Jeff get transformed as well as the external world. So, so if you wanted to be a part of somebody, you had to commit to that. And, you know, you just, people would just, the people that didn't commit, they stayed consumers watching, but we knew that we didn't consider them part of SOMA. Mm-hmm. Okay, I remember so I had a conversation with John Mark Comer one time, because we were working together on some stuff and when he was leading Bridgetown in Portland. And he said, Jeff, I'm so frustrated. We've got all these people in our church that aren't a part of the groups yet. And I feel like we only have about 40 or 50% in group life. And I said, I thought you told your church that they weren't a part of Bridgetown unless they were in a group. And I think they called them missional communities at that time. And he said, yeah, we did. I said, well, then you're great. You got 100% of your church in groups. He's like, is that how we get to look at it? I go, you need to look at it that way, because if the people who are attending a Sunday but aren't actually actively making disciples think they're part of your church, then you've, you're you communicating to them you're okay, 
with them staying disobedient to Jesus. And he's like, man, if that, that would make it so much easier. I'm like, let it be that way. Jesus wept over the crowds, but he didn't consider them as followers. Yeah, and I think dang. that's, I, if I were lead, if I speak to a church leader, I would say, don't count your crowd as the disciples of your church. The people who are making disciples, people are want, who want to move into disciple making, and not everyone's going to get there right away, but they want to. They want to follow Jesus. They want to obey his commands. Those are the people that you're responsible for. And sadly, we let people be members of our church, quote-unquote members, without ever being obedient to Jesus. And I just would go, don't let those people call themselves members if you're using that language. You know, like, they're just attenders. They're yeah. not part. They're not co-laborers like Paul referred to as team. And some people use ministry partners instead of right. members. And I think that can be helpful, too. They're partners in the gospel. So if they're not partnering in the gospel work, then maybe they're not yet born again. Or maybe they're just infants and we got to help them grow up, but mm -hmm. we shouldn't let it be okay to stay in that place their whole life, which is what we, we too often do. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's powerful. Good stuff. And Jeff. by the way, here, here that is not anger against people. That's like, no. I want people to experience the abundant life Jesus promised. And yeah. I don't know how to find that abundant life if I don't actually yoke myself with Jesus, yeah. abide in him, and have him work in and through me. That's how I experience the abundant life, because I don't need the spirit to disobey Jesus. I need the spirit to obey Jesus. And so when I'm walking in obedience, I'm abiding. And when I'm abiding, I'm getting the life of God in me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I love that because that's such that, I mean, that is the norm. That's the expectation of Jesus on all of us. Um, and it really emanates from who we are. You know, I love Andrew, the questions that you're asking your group, but, but they're, they seem to be focusing on the doing aspect uh, of, of ministry or of disciple making when, when really the, the foundational piece is why are we doing this? Well, it's yeah. because of who we are in Christ. That's that's, right. that's Jesus's expectation of us as being identified with Him mm -hmm. and yeah. all that He's done and who He is, and that just kind of permeating us. Uh, it's the whole Ephesians one idea that's of right. us being adopted. We we are now. This is right. who we are: we sons are. and daughters. Absolutely. Yes. yes. Now, I didn't yeah, want we, to bore you with my document, Michael, and lead you through everything <laughs> where the two things that I asked came out of our identities, which were right before it. Yeah, yeah right. That's fine. Yeah. That's no, fine. I I'm, all, that. I'm only a little defensive. It's fine. No, I well, I remember because we were having this conversation yesterday through text messaging that yep. here you're changing everything to focus on Christ. So it's not it's not gospel centered. It's Christ centered. So yeah, discipleship, yeah. and I love, Jeff, that you put right in there, it, our identity in Christ is so yes. important to all of this, foundational, really. Yeah, we actually walk through five, we form all new disciples and how to ask five questions of the text, of life, of everything. And that is, who is God? Mm -hmm. Through Revealed through what he's done in Jesus. So what has he done in Jesus? Who are we then in Christ as a result of that? Mm. Those are the indicatives. They're, it's what's true no matter what we do. And then the next two questions are what we do because of what is true. And that is then what do we do in light of our new identity? And how do we uniquely do it in light of our gifts, our situation? That's contextualization, basically. And when we form people on those questions, 
one of those identities is I'm <clears throat> I'm a child of God, sent to be an imitator of our Father, right? Or I'm a servant of Christ, sent on behalf of Christ to serve the world. Or I'm a missionary, empowered by the Spirit, to go and make disciples who make disciples. And when you help every Christian live in their identity, then it's a matter of, do I want to be who I am today or not? Mm-hmm. We so it's have, not... Uh... I'm literally, I'm literally not, I'm, I'm not actually being who he made me to be when I don't do what he's called me to do. I mean, yep, my yep. identity is messed up. So I've got to get back to who am I in Christ? And if this is truly who I am, I will always do who I am if I believe yeah. it. Yep. Hmm? Yeah. Good. That's good. Good. Rich, rich stuff. Yes. I have, Jeff, it's so funny because um, the that whole fruit to root process that you line out in gospel fluency uh, your book, um, before it was a book, I got to hear you in Alabama go through that. And it was quite formative for me. And so I will tell you, um, usually I don't say this is from this book. It's by Jeff Vanderstelt. Please go read it, buy it and follow it. But I, I make people suffer through the fruit to root process as I walk them through. And, uh, um, and I really appreciate the contextual question too. Of, yeah, we've added that one. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And so if anybody has gone through our identity-based discipleship class on Ephesiology master classes, uh, if they have, they're going to say, hey, what Jeff says is that's really familiar because we've walked people through that, that the desire is that our that disciples that we are hopefully making and encouraging others to make, it's around our identity. It's mm-hmm. of who we are in Christ as adopted children sent as missionary, you know, family, missionaries, servants, disciples, like this is mm-hmm. who we are. This is absolutely who we are. Um, Jeff, I think I could ask you at least 600 more questions, uh, but for the sake of everybody listening, we'll curtail this. Um, if somebody has been encouraged, as I trust they have been today, and they want to continue learning from you and and listening to what God is doing in and through you, how can they connect with you um, after they leave our podcast? Yeah, saturatetheworld.com is the best place to go. Saturatetheworld.com, all one word. Um, We have a lot of resources there, um, a lot of training. And then I use most social media channels, though I don't like to, but it's just an easy way for people to stay connected if needed. But those would be the ways. Yep. Yep. And I think... I think our podcast will get posted in time um, with very little time to do so, but um, Exponential, the big conference that will be happening down in Florida on the first week in March, um, is going to be around this idea uh, with your yeah, I'm even, yeah. Yeah, I'm even doing a work, some workshops around it for people that can help them do some of the basics. Like, do you have a definition of disciple? Do you have a pathway for making disciples? Like, we're going to ask answer those two help a team answer those two questions and hopefully walk away with something not just information but actually something they built while they were with us um I, i'll say this too we are now create we created a new offering called the disciple making lab it's a one-year journey where we walk with the church's leadership team to help them redesign their whole approach to disciple making if they need help so that's something they could reach out and find out more about if they're interested 
That is fantastic. Well, Jeff, thank you for being with us. And thank you, our listeners, for joining us too in this Make Disciples podcast series. If this was your first podcast in the series, because we happen to have somebody like Jeff Vanderstel on, uh, we're glad that you have joined us. But if you want to find out more about our podcast, just jump to that catalog uh, wherever you're listening to this. Scroll back, check out a topic, and we hope that it is an encouragement to you. Lastly, please check out all the resources that we have for you at masterclasses.ephesiology.com. And I trust it will be a benefit to you. So for Michael, for Jeff, and for myself, thanks for doing Theology in Community with us today on the Ephesiology Podcast.